Well, as old as time is the plot line or the trope of, we have it in Hollywood, we have it in our stories, it's the plot line of the chosen one. Have any of you seen a movie or read a story with this plot line? It goes all the way back. They found in the third millennia BC stories containing this plot line, and you've seen this movie a thousand times. The main character is chosen usually by someone of a higher power, to save the world. And the burden of that task is resting on a singular person's shoulders, and the fate of the world is determined by them. And so thousands of characters have been the chosen one. Harry Potter was called the chosen one. Anakin Skywalker was called the chosen one. And even in that movie, he was, there was no father, but he was born only of his mother, conceived of the force, so that he might be the chosen one. Where do you think they got that plot line? So these pictures, these movies, they point to the greatest chosen one narrative that you know and you've heard from the time you were a child, but Luke 23, 35 says that Jesus Christ is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Jesus is the chosen one. Jesus is the elect of God. And he was the only one who could save the world from sin and death, but he was not the only one to carry the title chosen one. He is not the only one in scripture that is called the elect of God, because not only Jesus Christ is called chosen, but his people are called chosen. And his people are called the elect of God. And if you'll turn to 1 Thessalonians 1, we're going to look at verses 4 to 5 this morning as we continue to hear Paul's prayer for this church. And as he's praying, chosen of God is the premier title that he gives to this church. He's already called them one, and he's going to start to multiply synonyms for what these believers are. But first he says, you're the church. You are the church. And as he moves through, he's going to say, you're brothers, you're beloved, you're chosen. But let's read our text this morning, 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 4. Paul says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And then he'll go on to say, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And so this morning he's going to say the premier title for you is chosen of God and He's going to give them this title, and then he's going to tell them why. He says, and not only are you chosen, but I know that you are. And he says, and here's how I know. I have assurance that you belong to the Lord. And as he, as he does this here in the beginning, in, in verse 4, he multiplies synonyms for who they are as Christians. He starts by saying, you're brothers, for we know brothers. And this is one unique way of looking at your salvation, recognizing that Jesus Christ is the eternally begotten Son of God, and recognizing that this congregation was adopted by God the Father. And so if salvation is you being hidden in Christ, and if Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, then what does that make you except for a child of God? Son of God is reserved for uh, Jesus alone, but you become a child of God. And in the moment that you're saved, you are placed by the Holy Spirit into this entity called the church. And from that moment, everybody who belongs to Jesus Christ is your brother and is your sister. And Jesus says this when they ask him, 
you know, where, where's your brother and your mother? And he said, look around you. Whoever does the will of my father is my brother and is my sister. We belong to a new family that's even closer than our own family. We belong to the church. We are brothers. That's one synonym for the church. That's one identity marker, but he goes on. These are very intentional. As you'll see, he says in verse four, you're beloved of God. How does that make you feel? You can have the worst day of your life and you can wake up and say, or you can go to bed at night saying, but I am beloved of God. He has set his love on me. I'm a treasured possession of him and love. Another way to look at God's salvation, your salvation in Christ, that you are beloved because God is love by his nature. That's why 1 John 4 says he is love. And because that is his nature, he puts this attribute on display by taking on the form of man, becoming like men, taking on the form of a servant. And he gives the greatest display of love as it is written that greater love has no man than this, than he what? Lay down his life for his friends. Is that what Jesus did for us? That's what the chosen one did. He laid down his life for his friends so that all who put their faith in him may become the eternal objects of God's mercy and love. And so we become forever as a title, as an enduring identity marker for us in our own souls, we are now beloved of the living God. That's their second title. And the third one reads as a verb, for we know, brothers, beloved by God, that he has chosen you, but it's actually a noun. You are chosen of God. And verse four is important because if you remember last week, he's giving thanksgiving to God and he's going to, to the Lord in prayer and he's doing a few things. He says, I'm mentioning you in my prayers, multiplying words about you, whether it's out loud or in inner dialogue, inner monologue. He says, I mention you in my prayers. And he says, not only that, but he remembers them. And what does he remember? Their work that was produced by faith and their labor that was prompted by love and their endurance that was produced by hope. He says, this, these virtues are the things that I remember about them. But now he says, there's something that I know about you. And as I stand before God the Father in prayer, giving thanksgiving to you, this is what I know about you, that you were chosen by God. That's his, the final thing that he's doing in thanksgiving and in prayer. He says, I know that you were chosen. And this is his chief grounds of thanksgiving for the Thessalonian believers that they belong to God. And this is important because it teaches us something about the Lord. It teaches us something about God because it teaches us something about God's will. God's will is not a hypothetical subject. It's not just a cute idea. God's will does not exist in a vacuum. And it's sobering to remember that the Lord, God the Father, is a king. And creation is his kingdom. And he stands over creation as its sovereign Lord. And he is Lord over this church. And he is Lord over your family. And Lord over you and your soul. And like any king in any kingdom, he is a king who makes decisions and he makes decrees. And these aren't things that just are stay contained in his head, but they work themselves out into the kingdom and these decrees and these decisions he expects to be obeyed. They're important. They're not optional. And this verse teaches us what's important and it is that our God is an electing God. And it means choosing. He is a God who chooses and he makes decisions and he's a God of providence that works out his decisions into this world to see that his will is done. 
And we can see it very clearly in a few places in Scripture, even in Luke 4. You can turn there if you would like, but I'll, I'll read some of these passages to you. We see God's work of choosing playing out, especially almost systematically in Luke 4 and 5, where Jesus says in Luke 4, 25, that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. But did God go to every one of these widows and comfort them? He says, no. He says, God chose to send Elijah to the widow at Zarephath only. And then a few verses later, verse 27, he says, there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha, but God chose, he elected Naaman from Syria as the object of mercy to heal him. And did the Pharisees appreciate Jesus reminding them that he had mercy on a foreigner, but not those who were in Israel. They were the chosen nation. He had elected them, and yet he sends Elisha to a foreigner. In Luke 5.10, he chooses 12 men who will be his disciples. And we can presume that there were many disciples on the Sea of Galilee the day that Jesus went there. And yet he goes and he selects for himself 12 men. He selects on that day Peter and James and John to be his chosen instruments that would become his disciples and his apostles and to bring this Bible to the world. And Romans records that God even chooses for salvation Isaac over Ishmael, Moses over Pharaoh, Jacob over Esau. And as a nation, he says, I came out of all of the nations. We just read it in Deuteronomy 7. Out of all the many nations with all of their track record and all of their glory, I chose the least of these, Israel, to be my vehicle for salvation to the world. He says, I chose them out of the many, my special instrument for salvation. Now, why did he choose them and not the others? And here we have to be very, very careful because when you start to look into the deep things of God, Romans 9 cuts you off and he says, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Who are you to ask questions about God's prerogatives and motives? And yet in his mercy, Deuteronomy 7 says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that he set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But here's our answer. It is because the Lord loves you. Why did he choose the Thessalonian church? Why did he choose Israel? He says, because he loves them. And you see uh, these two ideas coming together in scripture. As God works out his providence and, and chooses things over others, it's its motivation is by love. Love and election go hand in hand. These two things belong together and they constantly go that way in scripture. And this is the profound thought here. And he uses these identity markers on purpose because as we read passages like Deuteronomy 7, the two words that he uses to describe his elect nation Israel are chosen and beloved. And now the implications for us are phenomenal because what does he then say to the Gentile church? You are chosen and you are beloved. And the implication is you are now the treasured possession of God. It's not just Israel, but he has opened up and now his mercy comes to Gentiles and to this church and to the individuals in that church. And so it's no small significance now that they become, in verse four, the chosen of God and the beloved of God. It was the church as a whole 
was chosen. The individuals in that church, by extension, he says, are choice instruments for him, people holy to the Lord. And so why does he elect men to be his chosen instruments? I think we've already seen that the answer is love, but as we ask this question, we never really get a satisfying answer in Scripture. Why does he elect some and not others? And the answer is, well, he loves them. And we say, well, why does he love some? He says, well, because he elected them. And we can never quite get the answer that we desire, but the best we can come up with is from Paul in Romans when he says that there's this thing that exists called God's purpose of election. He says, in order that God's purpose of election or choosing may continue, he has mercy on whom he wills. And here we go again. We see it's God's will. God is a God that doesn't just possess a will, he exerts it. That's what providence is. We see God moving and orchestrating the things in this world to accomplish his purposes in this world. We love providence and we are under God's providence because he loves us. And as we go through the New Testament, generally in the New Testament, there's a threshold that you have to cross to gain entry into the New Testament books. And the threshold that you have to cross is this subject, verse four. God chose you. God's purpose of election, or you might say selection. It comes in John 1, where he says, we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but we were born of God. He will go on to say, exactly as Paul says here, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Romans 1, to all those in Rome beloved by God and called to belong to Christ Jesus. You are beloved and you are called. First Corinthians 1, it says, because of him, you are in Christ. Ephesians 1, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.5, you know it, he who began a good work in you will what? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. 2 Timothy 1, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purposes and grace. James 1, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are chosen. Verse 3, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. 2 Peter 1, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. And 2 John 1, 1, to the elect lady and her children. It's a threshold that you have to cross and it's given a place of prominence because God wants you to understand that his will is important. The subject is important. It's front loaded so that you have to see it as you look into these books. And the Dictionary of New Testament Theology records, quote, the noun election is used unambiguously and exclusively for God's act of election which is his way of saying that what's emphasized in scripture is God's choices and God's decisions. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 Peter 1, the church is reminded that God's election is the basis of her existence, end quote. So this all occurs within the context of Paul being immensely and profoundly thankful for this church at Thessalonica. And this is the grounds for Paul's thanksgiving. And it's the ground for all our thanksgiving. Are you thankful that God chose us as a church to be an instrument for his glory and to expand his kingdom into Shawnee and into this nation? Yes. 
Are you thankful that he chose you to be an instrument of his glory and the object of his love? And the answer is, of course. Can you believe it, that he chose you, Deuteronomy 7-7, to be his treasured possession and assumed in the virtue of thankfulness? This reminds us that there's another virtue that goes with this, and it is the virtue of humility. Because every now and then we need to be reminded exactly how we got here. How did you become part of this church? How did you become part of God's kingdom? Because we didn't give God a reason to be an object of his love. As a matter of fact, the opposite is true. We, got every, we gave God every reason to be an object of his wrath and of his punishment. We didn't do God any favors by stepping into his kingdom. We need to get to our knees sometimes and be reminded that God did us the favor. He brought us into his kingdom. He set his love on us. We love him because he first loved us. And that's why being a proud Christian is a contradiction in terms. A proud Christian is an oxymoron because this is a humbling statement. We are where we are today. We are hidden in Christ because God willed it to be so. And because of his love, not because of our achievements, he reminds Israel, not because of their power or their wealth or their influence or their charisma, we're here because God willed it and we're here because God loved us. And so it's for that reason, Paul says, we give thanksgiving. And this understanding is at the same time, two things for us. It's on one hand, a tremendous comfort to know that we belong to God and that it was his will for us to belong to this church. And it's at the same time, a tremendous challenge. And so it's comforting because it means that our salvation is not dependent on us. And it's not on ups to, to earn our way in or to do, there's no work that we could do to make us good enough to belong to Jesus Christ and there's no work that we ever would need to do. It is purely because of him. And Paul uses this doctrine specifically for the Thessalonians because they're undergoing tremendous persecution and he wants to comfort them, saying in, in the midst of heavy opposition, your future is secure because it's not dependent on your own efforts or your own abilities. And it never has been. And at the same time, he who began to work in us will bring it to completion. It brings us a challenge. It's a comfort, but it's a challenge because now we're accountable to live to the high calling that we've been called to in Jesus. Now the bar has been raised for you and you have every incentive in the world to go and to proclaim Jesus Christ. And so we forget sometimes that election is the ignition switch into gospel proclamation because now you know it's not based on your efforts this is what Charles Finney said. He, he had it down to an art form. He was a lawyer. And he said, if you can just get me in a room for 15 minutes with somebody, I will convert them. And he, a lot, Charles Finney did a lot of good things, but he thought he could influence it and he could manipulate words in a way that he could bring somebody into the kingdom and praise God. It's not based on our ability to preach. I especially praise God for that. But we are rest assured knowing that when we pray, Lord, save my brother or my sister or my mother, he has the power to do that. He goes before us. He loves before we love. He, he moves. He draws men to himself, prepares their hearts. He draws them by himself to himself. And then you are given the liberty to preach the gospel, knowing that God goes before you. And you have the liberty and the freedom to proclaim Christ. And that's the challenge. This is what Paul knew about the Thessalonian church. He said, I know this, beloved brothers, that God has chosen you. And he almost 
this is mentioned almost in passing. It's part of one of the main verbs that kind of attaches to his prayer of thanksgiving, but he, he rushes over this because he doesn't just want to tell you that they're chosen. He wants to tell you how he knows. He says, I know that you belong to Jesus Christ. I have assurance of your salvation. They might not even have assurance of their salvation, but he says, I know that you belong to Jesus, and I want you to see how I know. He says in verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So my first course in preaching, before I ever knew I was going to be a preacher, I took a course in expository preaching here at OBU uh, with a gentleman who got his PhD in preaching and his research languages were rhetoric and logic. And so one of the first weeks he came on the board and he drew three dots in the form of a triangle. And he said, as, as preachers or proclaimers of God's word, you need to know Aristotle's rhetorical paradigm for persuasion. And he says, these three dots represent Aristotle's three principles, ethos, pathos, and logos. Nod at me if you've heard these before. He said, this is what you are to do as a preacher. He said, first there's logos. There has to be content to your preaching. And this is true not just for the preacher, but for anybody who's discipling somebody in the faith. Anybody who steps into the children's Sunday school room and wants to tell them about God. Anytime you are given a platform to preach or teach God's word or to disciple according to God's word, this is true for us. There has to be content. Because if you proclaim the gospel with passion and your heart and your life and your character back it up, but you don't have anything to say, well, then... You're, you're no preacher at all. You have to have something, uh, there has to be content or your message is poor. And he moved on to the next one, he says pathos, which means you have to have passion. You have to have conviction. You need to have a little bit, even if it's just a little bit, a little bit of fire in your bones as you teach somebody, lest they think God is boring or his word is boring. And he says there's a famine in the land, and you know this to be true. There's a famine in the land today for people who are excited about God's word. And I can tell you from the preaching that I've heard and even among my friends and peers, there's a, there's a famine in the land for passionate preachers who will bring God's word with some conviction and some fire. And so if you preach a faithful message and have all the character in the world, but you lack the fire, you lack any kind of conviction or passion, he says, you've, you've failed in your message and the last dot, he said, you have to have character. You have to have ethos. You have to be trustworthy and respectable. And you have to be a living embodiment of the message that you preach. Because if you preach a faithful message with passion, nobody will listen to you if they perceive that you are a jerk. You have to be a good person. You have to embody the message. And so Paul says, this is how we articulated truth. Verse 5, here is how I know that you were chosen by God. He says, the gospel came to you in word. The content was there. The gospel came to you with power and with conviction. He says, the passion was there. I felt it as your preacher. And he says, the gospel came to you supported by godly character, buttressed by a moral and exemplary life, which is why he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. And so we, as we look at these, we see that Paul says, he knows there are chosen, not because of something that they did, but because of how the gospel came to them, the manner in which it came through him, through Timothy, and through Silas. And so I want to look at these in turn. I want to look at logos. 
I wanna look at the content because any Christian message must have good content which requires faithful study and hours of preparation. And so a Christian message has to be arrived at through pure articulation of what God is teaching. And there's no shortcut to faithful content. Sometimes you have this logos, and he, as he gave this triangle, he says, you as a, as a communicator of God's truth need to be right in the middle of that triangle at all times. You need to be balancing all of these things. And if your logos is out of balance, sometimes the tendency is to try and use a little bit of charisma, a little bit of charisma or ethos to try and wiggle your way in. And that's the danger of somebody who is charismatic. If you have a natural ability to communicate, then your tendency is gonna to be to skimp on your preparation because you know that you can work a room. So you can't, he says, we, we didn't skimp on you when we brought the word, we brought you the pure word. And so not only can you lean on your ethos, but you can lean on your pathos a little bit. Have you ever seen a preacher who really didn't have much to say, but man, he was sure fun to listen to? Or a Sunday school teacher, or I know you've heard a preacher where he said, you know, he had so much passion, he was doing all this yelling, and he was sweating, but he didn't really have anything to say. The tendency could be to, you know, the louder that a person is, we think, man, he must be communicating something important. But you have to have passion with content. Because believers, this only works for so long in a church. Because they begin to want and crave the pure milk of the word. And people begin to crave meat. And they want to know and grow in Christ. And so this only lasts for so long. And when the spirit is moving, you crave the word. There's no shortcut to this. A faithful message requires hours of labor and wrestling with a text, asking the question, what does this verse mean? And not only what does it mean, but then you have to communicate it to an audience. You have to apply it for the people that are listening. And that's exactly what Paul did. He didn't just take the Old Testament. He didn't just cite Deuteronomy 7, but he took it to them and he said, you all are undergoing tremendous persecution and this is the verse that you need right now. He says, you remember how they were beloved? Do you remember how they were chosen of God? And he says, that's you. Stand firm in the faith in the midst of your persecution. He brought it to them. He brought it fresh. Paul continues in verse five saying, not only in word, he goes beyond, he says, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so a gospel message is not a faithful message unless there is some passion in your heart. God forbid that anybody would ever think that the Lord is boring or his word is boring because they listen to you talk about him. He says, my message came to you with full conviction. I think of Jeremiah 20 verse nine where Jeremiah shows his heart when he says, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary with holding it and I cannot withhold it any longer. That's how you communicate truth. He says, there's fire in my bones. He says, you, you saturate yourself in the Bible until the message grips you and it grips your heart. And then you pray yourself hot. And then when you can no longer stand to keep it inside, that's your time to go. When John Piper says, when you now have the aroma of Christ on you, then you're ready to teach. Then you're ready to be a faithful herald. And so in our culture, and some of you in this room are the opposite of Jeremiah. You, uh, we wonder when you begin to talk about God whether or not you have a pulse. And so we say, you put some pins in your shoes or some Legos in your shoes. It'll keep you moving a little bit as you speak and the church will buy you a Red Bull if you need it so that you can have a pulse when you open up God's word to the children or the youth or wherever, whatever platform he's given you. 
because it's an exciting thing to be chosen by the living God. It's a, and it's an exciting thing to, to be counted worthy to proclaim the gospel and to disciple men and women and to teach, or teach them according to the scriptures. So how can we as Christians redeemed by grace be boring? I want to remind you as well, teaching God's word is not an academic exercise. Paul says we preach with passion and with conviction, with conviction and we preach with urgency. We preach with urgency, knowing that the impact that this message has on the lives of our people. Knowing the consequences of sin, we preach with urgency, don't we? Knowing that heaven and hell stand in the balance for those who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you are the chosen representative. You need to remember that God's people have three needs in mind every time they sit at your feet. Their minds need to be saturated in the truth. Their hearts need to be set on fire with emotion and with passion. And that's true of all of us. Our bodies crave to do fruitful and productive work, but we need to know the way to go. And the Bible tells us the way to go. And so we preach with passion and conviction and urgency, and we have a little fire in our message. Finally, he says, not just logos, not just pathos, but ethos. Have you ever received life advice from somebody that you perceived to be uh, mean? Do you listen to them? Do you ever take advice from someone at work who is lazy? Do you listen to the sluggard? The answer is no. Your character matters when you teach. Paul says this. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you. God says this repeatedly through scripture from Leviticus to Peter. He says, be holy as I am holy. Because you are representatives of God. You are made in the image of God. You represent Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And so if your content is perfect and you deliver a passionate, informative, convicting message, but your life is a wreck, nobody will hear you. And so he says this, Paul says this to 1 Timothy, if you're not above reproach, you can't be a pastor. Anyone who desires the office of overseer desires a noble task. Do you want to be a pastor? He says, well, you're going to have to talk to people about their life. So do you have any addictions? Are you addicted to much wine? Well, then they're not going to listen to you, so you're disqualified. How, are you leading your family well? You're going to have to talk to people about their families. How is your family? Because if it's not above reproach, you cannot be a pastor. And the list goes on. How is your marriage? Because if you're not leading your wife well, they will not listen to you. And he says, oh, by the way, it's the same as if you want to be a deacon. Is your life above reproach? Because you can't serve somebody else in the name of Jesus Christ if you don't have the ethos to back it up. Why would they listen to you? You have to live the life. He says, you have to be, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Meaning you can trust our message. You can trust the things I say because I've already put them in place in my own life and look how blessed my life is, say Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. It was a faithful message and our lives didn't contradict the words that we spoke to you. He says, we came to you with ethos, we came to you with pathos, we came to you with logos. And so my question to you is, are you living out the doctrines that you confess? Are you seeking to be more and more like Jesus Christ so that your message penetrates even deeper into the hearts of the people that you witness to? We need to be more like John Rogers, who at his own martyrdom before Bloody Mary was given one last chance to recant his beliefs before he was killed. And his final words were, what I have preached, I will seal with my blood. That's the kind of guy you listen to. 
because he's saying with his own words and with his own actions, what I teach and what I preach and what I believe matters. And we need to be more like that. And yet, what is the state of our church today? What is the state of the churches in our area? Oftentimes, we hate to admit it, even our own hearts and our own pews. We have people with average content of an average moral character preaching and teaching with an average amount of passion and then expecting the Holy Spirit to do some great, amazing work in our midst. And Paul says, that's not how we proclaim Christ to you. He uses the word gospel 16 times in this book. He says, this is not how the gospel came to you. May it never be so. And Paul had one thing that no rhetorician can, can fake. Anybody can fake ethos, pathos, and logos. I can pretend that I've got my life in order. I can raise my voice and yell a bunch from the pulpit. He says, we had one thing that no rhetorician can fake. And he says in verse five, we came to you in the Holy Spirit. We came to you with power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul says, I know this church is chosen because I know my own experience preaching to you. The Holy Spirit was going before him, inspiring his message. It wasn't his own passion. He says, the Spirit inflamed my impassions, my passions and made me excited to be here. And the Holy Spirit was guiding me into a holy and moral life. I'm not doing it in my own strength, but the Spirit was moving in me. And he could perceive that the Spirit was moving. And anybody in this room who has ever taught for any length of time knows that there are times where you teach where the Holy Spirit is energizing you in a way that you cannot explain. And you're very aware that it's usually at the end of your rope when you have very little to give, the Holy Spirit shows up in your weakness and he makes your message powerful. And this was true for me. The greatest message that I ever preached was to four little old ladies in a retirement home on a day when I had no time to prepare. And the Lord knows that was, it was a terrible week. I was stretched thin. I truly had no time to prepare. I showed up seven minutes early and sat in the parking lot. And in that moment I said, Lord, I have nothing to teach you. I just prayed. I said, it's a terrible week. Give me something. Holy Spirit, come into me and give me something that I can say to these people. And when I walked in, I taught them on God's wrath from Romans 1. And it was one of the most profound experiences of my life because it wasn't my message. And it was incredible that I, I felt as I was preaching, almost like I was watching myself from the third person delivering these messages to this people. And so forever, it will be humbling to me to know that the greatest message I've ever preached was to a room of four people with no preparation, where God used my weakness to be strength. And Paul says that's exactly what happened in Thessalonica. He says, I am the least of every apostle, is what Paul said. He said, I know I don't have powerful oratory. I know that I'm not a great man of God. And it was because I'm the least of all the apostles that God used my weakness to do incredible things in your church. He says, that's how I know you're saved. Because in my weakness, he made it strength. He proclaimed through me. I felt the power of the Holy Spirit moving through me as I proclaimed the message. And then he says he knew from that moment that they were chosen of God because he was preaching with a power and a conviction that was not his own. And the letter be continues by telling us the greatest reason that Paul knew that this church was chosen. Yes, he came to them with sound doctrine. Yes, he came to them with passion and conviction. Yes, he came with his character sealing his message. But in verse six, he says, you became just like me. And that's how he knows. He says, I came in the power of the Holy Spirit with passion. And he says, and you became like me. You became like Silvanus. You became like Timothy. 
Not only that, he says, not only did you become imitators of us, but you became imitators of the Lord. He says, and that was the proof. You will know them by their fruits. And he says, you have become Christ Iani. You have become little Christs. That's what our name means. And so Paul before the Father is constantly, he says, mentioning the Thessalonians in his prayers. This is what prayer was for him, mentioning the Thessalonian church, remembering their work that was produced by faith, their labor that was prompted by love, and their steadfastness that was inspired by hope. Our passage today says he knew before God the Father that they were chosen. He says, your virtues put on display. I know that you were saved. Your faith was manifested because of the virtues that you had, which prompted Christian service. He says, I know the Holy Spirit is in you because I see what you do. I see your fruit. And today he says, and I, I know that you were elect because your election was put on display because you, you now proclaim. It's not just me, but it's you proclaiming the gospel, the pure gospel with power and conviction and in a holy manner and because you became like Jesus in the sight of your culture. And that was Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for this church and church, that is my prayer of thanksgiving for you.